Well, good morning. I enjoyed getting to know your preacher on the retreat that he mentioned, and it's a three and a half day retreat, and he's very personable and likable, and at the end of three days, he was one of the leaders on the retreat. He just has a special quality about him, he's a great Bible teacher, and you are blessed to have Lyle as uh, your preacher here. I'm glad to be here. I, I got a... Yeah. I'm just a little bit uncomfortable. There are two guys sitting on the front row with black suits. <laughs> Y'all, you do see these guys, don't you? They both look like undertakers. In fact, they're, they're friends of mine. One of them is an undertaker, to be honest with you. <laughs> he said, at my age, you just hate to see me get out of sight. Uh, One of the things I appreciate about Sojourn Church is that you study the Bible. You're a people of the book. A couple of weeks ago, I emailed Lyle and asked what I should preach about today. He responded, I do not have any specific direction for you. We spent the summer in the book of James, and after your Sunday of preaching, we'll be working through the book of Galatians for the rest of the year. So feel free to preach whatever God lays on your heart. Generally speaking, I've watched, Sojourn Church does not get caught up in the current preaching fads of one topical four-week series after another. You're a people of the book, and you study the Bible, and every issue that currently people wrestle with bubbles up in the course of studying Scripture. And I appreciate that because historically, the Christian church, of which I've been a part, has kind of prided itself in being a people of the book, that we try to do Bible things in Bible ways. In fact, there's a history of uh, the Christian church called Captives of the Word, and I think that's a pretty good description of all God's people. We ought to have chapter and verse and be people of the book. But you know what? There are two verses of Scripture in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel that have often been overlooked by Bible-believing churches, but are much needed. In fact, I seldom heard these two verses preached on when I was growing up. And I've looked back at my preaching for 40 years at one church, and I don't know that I ever used these two verses as a text. And that's strange because we're a people of the book, and these are words from Jesus himself. Now, earlier in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel, we read about the Pharisees, zealous students of the Bible, who were longing for the coming of a Messiah, but somehow when Jesus came, they missed him. The Pharisees objected to Jesus' healing on the Sabbath day. They concluded he couldn't possibly be from God because he wasn't observing their interpretation of the law. And verse 18 of this chapter says, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not because he was, not just because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. But the two verses I want to focus on today are verses 39 and 40, where Jesus responds, you study the Scripture diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
Obviously, it's not enough to know the Bible. It's not enough for a church to be a people of the book. We need to know Jesus. Not just be captives of the word, but Paul said he was a slave of Christ. Southeast Church was always big into a Bible Bowl program. There's a national Bible Bowl competition for teenagers, and so we'd get our teenagers studying the Bible. And it was incredible the way these kids would sometimes memorize an entire book of the Bible, like the book of Joshua, and they could quickly recall everything in the book. But I got to admit that I overestimated the value of that program initially. I thought, if we can just saturate our kids with the Bible, that will assure that they'll always have a Christian worldview. And indeed, we got some great Christian leaders come through that program. But I can point to you two of our very best Bible bowlers who are not in the church today. One is an angry atheist. The other wouldn't darken the door of the church because he's bitter. So obviously, just filling their minds with the Bible was not enough. In retrospect, I think they studied the Scripture to impress people with their intellect rather than to come to know Jesus Christ of the Scripture. You study the Scripture diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. But these are the Scriptures that testify about me, and you wouldn't come to me that you would have life. Frankly, over the years, I've met some people in the church who know the Bible well, but they don't demonstrate to me the Spirit of Christ in their lives. Of greater concern to me is this. Can I be guilty of the same thing? Do I study the Bible to preach and to impress, or do I come to study the Bible that I might know Jesus Christ and His will for me? I think all of us who go to church regularly, grow up in the church, need to ask, why did these Pharisees, whose entire lives were dedicated to being people of the book, why did they completely miss Jesus when He came? Well, one reason they missed Jesus was because He was the threat to their popularity. In verse 44 of chapter 5, the Bible says that Jesus said, How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? You see, they love the praise of men more than the approval of God. Up to this point, the crowds had flocked to them for answers. And now suddenly, their fickle followers were enamored with this new rabbi from Nazareth, and they quoted him and raved about him, and they were ignoring the Pharisees. Later on, when they do succeed in killing him, the Bible says Pilate knew that it was for envy that they had delivered him. I think sometimes our desire for popularity becomes more important than following Jesus. And even though we know the Bible, we shut him out. Some of the teaching of Jesus goes against the grain of popular opinion today. For example, Jesus said, go sell what you have and give it to the poor. Or Jesus said, have you not read at the beginning God made them male and female? I say to you, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. And when God joins, let no one separate. I say to you, if somebody divorces his mate and then marries another, they commit adultery. Jesus said, I say to you, don't fear the one who can kill your body. Fear the one who can kill both your soul and your body in hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You teach those sayings of Jesus, you share that with people, and you might not be as popular as you once were. <laughs> I once was asked to have the invocation at a civic function in downtown Louisville, and a lot of the big wigs were there. Not too long, be shortly before I got up to pray, the MC said, now remember, this is a diverse audience. I knew what he meant. Don't use the J word. But I always pray in Jesus' name. But that day I concluded my prayer by saying, and Father, we ask all these things in the name of the Lion of Judah. Amen. <laughs> and all the Christians knew who the Lion of Judah was, and they felt good, and the non-Christians didn't know, and they weren't offended. I thought I'd been pretty clever. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I'd not been clever, I'd been cowardly. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you one day when you stand before the Father in glory. And if you're more concerned about pleasing men than pleasing God, you can know the Scripture, but not follow Jesus. The first century Pharisees also missed Jesus because he was a threat to their authority. The Bible says he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. They later reasoned, if we don't do something about this man, we're going to lose our place and our nation. They were more concerned about protecting their tiny territory than being objective about the claims and the miracles of Jesus. When Jesus cleansed the temple, they were upset and they said, who gives you the authority to do these things? They didn't ask, have we made the temple corrupt? Have we made the temple a den of thieves? No. They ask, who gave you the right to usurp our authority? And it still happens today. You know, you give some people a little title, and they become like Barney Fife, who deputy sheriff, <laughs> elder, doctor, professor, coach, referee. Their whole personality changes, and they look for ways to impress people with their status and their power and not be Jesus. We had a woman call our church. She spoke to the newly appointed uh, events coordinator, was the title, events coordinator. She asked the events coordinator at a church if she could reserve the fireside room for her parents' 60th wedding anniversary, and the events coordinator said, no, we just do 50th. And people ask me why I retired. I know the policy manual says, for example, 50th anniversary, but don't be so anxious to throw your weight around. Say no. Jesus said, the Gentiles love the Lord and over people, but not so with you. Whatever be great among you, let him be the servant of all, because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And if we see our position in or out of the church as one of status rather than one of service, we're liable to miss Jesus as did the Pharisees. Jesus was a threat to their security, too. Since childhood, they believed that the coming Messiah was going to be a political ruler. He would overthrow the oppressive Roman Empire and establish Jewish rule. That's the way they had always believed. And when Jesus didn't fit 
their interpretation of Scripture, they refused to change their preconceived ideas. Even the evidence of these spectacular miracles didn't soften their hearts. He's healing people, all right, but he doesn't fit our mold, so he must be doing it with the power of the devil. And they refused to admit that they were wrong. That meant they'd have to change their beliefs. He was the threat to their security. You know what? Much of my time as a pastor in a local church for 40 years was spent trying to change some people's preconceived idea of the interpretation of Scripture. They just couldn't get out of their comfort zone. Jack Hillard used to say, two things you can be sure about people. Number one, they resist change. And number two, they don't like the way things are. So I'd have to say, sir, I know the King James translation is called the authorized version, but it's not because Jesus authorized it. It was authorized by King James. Now, ma'am, I know, but the piano and the organ are not the only instruments that can praise God. No, sir, Sunday school was not instituted by the Apostle Paul at Lystra. Now, I don't know any place. Can you show me a place in the Bible where it says the American flag is supposed to be on the platform? Now, I know, I know the disciples sat around a table when they passed the Lord's Supper, but that doesn't mean it's wrong to get up out of your seat and go take the Lord's Supper at a table. I, I remember when we first went to Saturday night church, some people had doctrinal problem with it because the New Testament Christians met on the first day of the week. So I preached a sermon explaining why we're going to Saturday night church. The ox is in the dish. It's the only way we could grow. But I pointed out Romans 14 says some people regard one day as special. Other people regard every day alike. So let each be true to their own conscience. Don't judge each other. And Colossians 2 that says the old law was nailed to the cross. So don't let anybody judge you with regard to a Sabbath day. Thorough explanation. But one elderly, very legalistic woman came up to me at the end. She said, Brother Russell, you can say what you want to say, but Saturday is not the Sabbath. <laughs> well, I decided not to go there with that old bitty. But uh, <laughs> Jesus said, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And haven't you encountered people who know the Scripture really well? But they have never let Jesus soften their hearts. Bob Richards, the decathlon winner years ago said, these people are 18 inches from the kingdom of God. It's the distance between their head and their heart. And one of the discouraging, most discouraging experiences in ministry was to discover some people who came to church, even taught the Bible, but were living just the opposite of what they pretended on Sunday. Hitting their wives? Addicted to pornography, hateful in their attitude toward others of a different race, cursing at ball games. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them, and a good tree doesn't bring forth bad fruit. For the past decade, I've written a blog about every week, and I want to read you a brutal email I received from someone who claims to be a Christian. He wrote, this is the sorriest bunch of drivel I've ever read. With pitiful leaders like you, it's no wonder our churches are in such terrible shape. One day God will judge you in eternity for leading his people astray. Now what made that guy so angry with me? I had written a blog entitled, Can a Christian Vote for a Mormon for President? Now, 
there are two sides to that story and Christian people on both sides. If ever there was an issue where we ought to practice a slogan in doctrine, unity, and opinion, liberty, and in all things love, it should be that. But I hadn't denied the Trinity. I, I hadn't denied the virgin birth. And I answered this guy by saying, I seldom respond to nasty letters. True, I don't. But there's something about your note that intrigues me. I see by your email address that you're a preacher. And I assume you know the scripture. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Be kind one to another. Let your conversation be full of grace. Can you explain to me, please, when you write those nasty notes like this, what possibly goes through your mind? I would really like to know. And you know what? He's never answered. Now, having been the recipient of nasty grams my entire ministry, I learned to live with it. But I'm often perplexed as to why some people who call themselves followers of Christ can be so unlike Christ in spirit. Now, I'll grant you, we're dealing with deeply emotional and eternal important issues. However, it appears to me that they know the Scripture but they don't know the heart of Jesus. There's a gospel song that says, it's not what you know, it's who you know that matters. But to be honest with you, I'm more concerned about the opposite extreme today. There are those who attempt to completely divorce Jesus from Scripture, and they manufacture an imaginary Jesus who doesn't much resemble the Jesus of the Bible. They aren't concerned with what the Bible says. They just simply ask, what would Jesus do? That sounds like a good approach. How could anybody go wrong just asking, what would Jesus do? The problem is that what would Jesus do is used by people who have a very limited understanding of who Jesus really is in order to legitimize all kinds of behavior. Singer-entertainer Elton John recently said, if Jesus were walking the earth today, he would approve of gay marriage. Really? A woman gave me a book about a year ago, and the title of the book was Why Jesus Loves Obamacare and Other Progressive Ideas. <laughs> Written a whole book about it, including why Jesus would endorse abortion. Really? Years ago, we had a guest singer at our church. She was not only a great singer, she was very personable and quite attractive. And between songs, she said, you know, I've never married. I want to, but the Lord has not given me the right person yet. I hope he does someday. After the concert, she was signing CDs in our bookstore, and one of our single men waited in line for 15 minutes and came to her and said, while you were singing, Jesus spoke to me, and I'm your man. Without hardly looking up, she handed him a CD and said, that's nice to know when Jesus confirms it with me, I'll get in touch with you. We're all inclined to manufacture an imaginary Jesus who sees life exactly like we do. He may be nothing like the Jesus of the Scripture, but in our minds, he's placing his stamp of approval on our agenda. An individually conceptualized Jesus can be used to justify everything from cohabitation to divorce, from building a wall to taking children from their parents. And you'll hear people say, my Jesus would never judge anybody. My Jesus would never send anybody to hell. My Jesus wants me to be happy. My Jesus wouldn't discipline anybody in the church for wrong behavior because his church is for sinners. 
I confronted a Christian friend recently who had repeatedly lied to me about his drug addiction. He angrily responded, I'm glad Jesus doesn't judge me like you do. Well, it's the same Jesus who said, if you have something against your brother, go to him and tell him about it. What does it matter if our Jesus is just a figment of our imagination? If I get a notice in the mail that taxes have increased and I say, my governor would never increase taxes, I'm not paying it. (laughs) It wouldn't matter what my imaginary governor would do, uh, I'd probably be fine. And frankly, it doesn't matter what people's imaginary Jesus would do. There is a real Jesus. And he offers to be our savior. Or one day he's going to be our judge. And we come to know him by studying his word. Jesus did say, these are the scripture that testify about me. Or look at this passage in 1 John 5, verses 12 and 13. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can't separate Jesus from his word. This is such an important issue for Bible-believing churches today. Sojourn, your goal is not to be a church that believes in a subjective, warm, fuzzy, super-tolerant Jesus, nor a legalistic, cranky, negative Jesus who hates everybody but you. Your goal is to be a church of the New Testament whose believers know the real Jesus. And I love this passage in John 1.14 that says, The Word of God became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, see this next phrase, full of grace and truth. That's the balance of the real Jesus of the Bible. And as the culture caves in around us, and churches cave in around you, be a church full of grace and truth. Now, I just want to apply that to the evangelical church today in two ways. First, like Jesus, be full of grace and truth when dealing with social justice issues. You know, 50 years ago, churches pretty much ignored racism and poverty and compassion for the disenfranchised. But in recent years, the evangelical churches are doing a much better job and we're providing food for the hungry and backpacks for impoverished children going back to school and endorsing racial reconciliation programs and rebuilding homes in the inner city. And we should do that because Jesus said, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and welcome the stranger. The same as you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. And church leaders know the more we express compassion to the community, it gives us a more favorable image. And if the world sees us full of grace, maybe they'll be more receptive to our message. But here's my concern. We emphasize grace to the point that we say little about truth. Churches are shouting grace and whispering repentance and we get out of balance. Folks, social justice is not the gospel. Social justice is the byproduct of the gospel. But some are more comfortable with just being compassionate because we see tangible results and we don't offend anybody. But John Stott said, evangelism is prickly because it calls people to repentance. And we've got to be full of grace and truth. Remember in John 6, 
Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He was concerned about hungry people. But you know what happened the next day? The next day the crowds swelled. And the people came. They wanted free breakfast. But Jesus refused to feed them again. And he said, I'm not a bread Messiah. The bread that I feed you comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never go hungry. He who comes to me will never be thirsty. And verse 66 of John 6 says, from that day forth, many people walked back, left him, and, and, and walked no more with him. They wanted the bread, but not the message of eternal life. And it is so easy for a church to slip into being full of grace and neglect truth, and nobody gets saved. The, my favorite description of the gospel is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. Here's what's our priority. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. And then he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all pity, people to be pitied. If all we do is feed people and clothe people and be nice to people and they die in their sins, we're to be pitied. But Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. As in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. The most important part of your message is that Jesus died in atoning death to forgive our sins. He arose from the dead to prove that through his power it's possible for us to do it too. And our responsibility is not just to be compassionate, but to proclaim this message so people can be saved. There's another passage, Matthew 5.16. Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father on the day he visits us. There are two prongs to that, just like the two prongs of a nutcracker, and both are essential. There's the positive activity, your good deeds. But then there's your verbal testimony, the light shining on your good deeds so that people give glory to God, not to you. And if all you do is good deeds, they don't give glory to God. Let's say you're traveling down the expressway, and you see a guy pulled off to the side, got a flat tire, and you notice he's got braces on his arms. He's disabled. And you have pity compassion. You pull over, offer to help. He said, well, I got a problem. I got a flat tire and my spare is flat. So you help him take off the flat. You put it in your car. You drive him to the next exit. You wait until the flat is fixed. You do the loop coming all the way around. You help him put the tire back on and you drive away saying, boy, I've done my good deed today. I've let my light shine today. No, he's not giving glory to God. Who's he giving glory to? You. He's back there saying, that's one of the nicest people I've ever met. So in order to let your light shine so that they give glory to God, you do the good deed and then you give a verbal testimony. He says, thank you very much. And you say, well, I stopped because I'm a Christian. I just think that's what Jesus would have me to do. Or I stopped to see, if you live in town, do you, may I invite you to our church? I just stopped because I think that's what the Lord had me to do. I just stopped telling you you're going straight to hell if you don't repent. Something <laughs> real kind like that. Now that may be a little extreme, but what I'm challenging, when it comes to social justice, stay balanced. Truth and grace. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? 
Here's the second application. Be like Jesus, who is full of grace and truth when dealing with the hot-button cultural issues of our day. It's getting tougher and tougher to be the church in America. Gay marriage, abortion, transgender issues, cohabitation, women's rights, all kinds of political issues. How do we treat the alien? Now, as a church, you want to stand for the word. You want to align yourself with the real Jesus of the Bible. But how do you do that without alienating the very people that you're trying to win? How do you do that without leaving the impression you're a hate group? On the one hand are the Rob Bells who insist love wins in the end. There is no hell. Everybody's going to be saved. And the television preachers who will say, well, we don't take a stand on these issues because we're just not about judging anybody. And to me, I think they're saying what itching ears want to hear and turning aside to myths. But on the other hand are the Westboro Baptist people holding up signs that gay pride parades, you're going to burn in hell. I saw a sign on a church about a half mile from my home. It said, time is short, hell is hot, the king is coming, ready or not. Well, I doubt we win many people with that attitude. And none of you in this church wants to be ridiculed by the world as being misogynist or homophobic or Islamophobic or intolerant. We don't want to have a negative image in the community. But the challenge is, Stand for truth, yet be full of grace. Jesus did say to the woman caught in the adultery, I don't condemn you. What was the next phrase? Go and sin no more. Jesus did say to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I came not in the world to condemn the world, but the world is condemned already. And if you're not born again, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. So let's stand with Jesus, who's full of grace and truth. But let's remember that Jesus, full of grace, was crucified. And if it means that people sometimes hate us, they hated him. People say, well, you're going to come down on the wrong side of history. I'd rather be on the right side of eternity. Wouldn't you? I've got a son, Rusty, who preaches in Florida, took this church eight years ago. And he was there about three months. He said, hey, Dad, I've discovered we've got a number of couples in our church living together without marriage, and nobody's ever said anything. They're serving in the church. And I know the church is a place of sinners, but the church is supposed to be ecclesia. We're supposed to be called out and be different from the world. And I, I just got to say something about this, but as a new preacher, I don't want to come across as a heavy. So he was preaching through the book of Colossians. And he came to that passage in Colossians that says, take off the old and put on the new. So he said, Dad, this is the week I'm going to approach it. I'm going to say, take off the old standard of the world, which is cohabitation, put on the new standard of Jesus, which is commitment in marriage. As he was preparing his sermon, it just so happened that a young woman from the church called and said to him, my boyfriend and I have been living together without marriage for several years, and we feel guilty. We know we should get married, but he lost his job recently, and we can't afford to get married. Rusty said, I'll tell you what. You get married, you do the right thing, I'll marry you for free, I'll see you get the church building for free, we'll decorate it for free. And so she jumped at the chance. Then he got a brilliant idea. He said, you know, I'm preaching on that subject this very week, take off the old and put on the new. Would you be willing to get married at the end of my sermon as a demonstration of what I'm talking about? 
She said, would it still be for free? (laughs) Yeah, it'd be for free. Well, somebody in the church heard about it, went out and bought her a new dress. Somebody else made him a cake. Somebody else got her some flowers. And at the end of his sermon, Rusty said, now I want you to know that so-and-so-and-so-and-so are going to demonstrate what we've been talking about today. They're going to take off the old, put on the new, and get married. So he called up the groom and had a brief prayer. Then the person on the keyboard played, here comes the bride, door open, here came this girl down the aisle in the new dress and with those flowers. And he performed a wedding ceremony at the end of his sermon. You know, there's nothing in the Bible about how long a wedding ceremony has to be. One couple told the preacher, we want to get married, but we want a very brief ceremony. He said, how brief? They said, as brief as you can make it. He said, do you want to be married? They said, yes. He said, you are. Uh, (laughs) So there's nothing in the Bible that says how long. He performed this wedding ceremony. People clapped and cheered. And you know there are some young women on the way home nudging their live-in boyfriend saying, if they can do it, we can do it too. And what I'm challenging you today, Sojourn Church, be full of grace, but stand for truth. This is the Jesus who came to you from God the Father, full of grace and truth. There's an old saying that sums up what I've been talking about today. I've never been able to get the uh, person who quote, I've quoted it so often, people attribute it to me, but I love this saying. Truth without love is dogmatism. Love without truth is sentimentality. But speaking the truth in love, that's authentic Christianity. Let that be Sojourn Church. Let's pray.